If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel, if you would. We'll be in Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to look at some selected verses from chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we're continuing our little series that we began a while back of biographical sketches of folks in the Bible. And you may have noticed uh, in your bulletin or up on the screen, though we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Daniel, we'll actually not be looking at the life of Daniel, but rather we're going to look at the life of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as they were originally named, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, uh, these men are, are pretty well known to many people, both inside and outside the church, but the interesting thing is they only appear in Daniel's one chapters 1, 2, and 3, and after Daniel 3, they disappear from all biblical record, all biblical history, but even though they're only in the Bible for a little bit, I believe there are some things that we can learn from, uh, from their example. Now, like last week when, uh, when we stand to read the Bible, I'm going to read a few different verses, like I said, from chapters 1, 2, and 3, and they may seem a little disjointed because they all come from different uh, episodes in the lives of these men. But uh, even though it's, it, it may seem a little disjointed, hopefully we'll be able to tie all of it up, all of it up together and we'll get to see uh, kind of a, a sketch of their lives. So if you are able to and have found Daniel chapter 1, I'd like you to stand in honor of God's Word. And we're going to pick up in verse 17 of chapter 1 and read down to verse uh, 20. It says, As for these four youths, that's Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified before presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them, and out of, out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Okay, If you look down at uh, chapter 2 then, and we're going to pick up in verse 17 in it as well. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Uh, the, the mystery, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, that Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And then if you'll look over at chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 8 and read down uh, through much of uh, chapter 3. It says, For this reason, at that, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But, if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and here's, here's our, our key uh, section here, the next couple of verses. Now, they replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, the seven is, is kind of the, the number of completion in Scripture, so this is like as hot as they can make it. Verse 20, He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and ordered, in, order to cast them, in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loose and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, prefects, and governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regards to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies. Uh, on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> As I said, I know those were, uh, may, maybe if, if you're familiar with the accounts of, of these three men, those, those, uh, those passages that we read may be familiar to you, you may know the context of them, but if, if you're not uh, up on all that, it may seem kind of disjointed. Hopefully we'll tie all this together. And the first thing I want you to see about these men back in chapter 1 is they had supernatural wisdom. They had supernatural wisdom. Now where we pick up in the text, Babylon is, is the superpower of that age. Okay, they, they have, they, they're conquering all kinds of, of nations and kingdoms, and, and they're a brutal people. And in 587 B.C., they, they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they took it. Now, part of Babylon's plan, part of the king's plan, was he would deport people from place A and, and deport them to place B, and he'd take people from uh, place B and put them in place A. And, and there was no ties to the, to, the, to the nation in which the people found themselves. They were, they, they were people without a home. And so... He would ship them off, he would exile them, and that's where we pick up in the book of Daniel. He has cut, the, the nation of uh, Babylon has taken over Jerusalem. They have deported uh, a whole bunch of people. Some of them are Daniel and his three friends. Now, if, you'll have, if you have your Bible open, look up at verse 3 and following. You'll see that part of his plan was to take, take the, the cream of the crop, the, the creme de la creme, of all these nations that they were conquering, and, and they, they would take them in and... and, and and inundate them with all kinds of information. 
They would teach them the language of, of the Chaldeans, the, the, the Babylonians. They would uh, teach them the sciences. They, they would teach them the literature of the people. And all these, all these people from all these different nations, like I said, they, they, they were well-bred, they were good-looking, they were intelligent, and those were the people that the king would bring into his court. And you'll notice that, that, that he didn't just make him part of his court. He didn't just pull him off the street and say, okay, you're going to serve me in a, personal, uh, in, in a personal capacity in some way. But rather, the Bible tells us that there was a three-year training period where all this stuff happened to them. And in case these, uh, the, these four Hebrew men, and, and I'm, I'm including Daniel in here, uh, one of the things that happened was not only were they uh, given all this information, all this stuff that they had to learn, but the Bible says that their names got changed as well. But we don't know exactly why they renamed them. Part of it, I think, was, was dominion, because what, what your name is, that's who you are. And if somebody says, I have the right to start calling you something different, they're saying, I control you. I own you. I, I am superior to you. And I'm not talking about like, like a nickname. Uh, I'm sure you probably all, most all you grew up with nicknames. Maybe, maybe you have a nickname now that maybe your, your friends call you or your spouse calls you. I'm not talking about that. I mean, like, this is your new identity. And so part of this was, was probably to, to tell them, we are the ones who own you. We, we are your boss. And these were young men. These are probably like 15-year-old kids. Okay, they're, they're, they're probably teenagers. They're, they're young men. Um, if you look through this, this account... Some translations render this children. Now, they're not like my kid's age. Okay, these are young men. But one of the things that we don't, we don't see because we don't read Hebrew, but all three of these guys' names had something to do with the name of God or had something to do with God. And so, uh, so when they changed their names, it was probably a way to, to, uh, to, to, to kind of break the ties with their tradition, break ties with their history, break ties with their worship of the one true God. So... Look back at verse 17. That's, that's the context that these guys find themselves in. They're in a foreign land. But look at verse 17. Notice that even though they're in a foreign land and they're in, a, uh, they're in dire straits in, in a number of, of ways, God had not forsaken them. It says, As for these for use, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. They were, in a, they, they, they were removed from friends and family. They were in a place of strange culture. They were in a place of, uh, that, that was unfamiliar to them. They were being taught and indoctrinated with false religion. And yet, verse 17 says that God was with them. He gave them knowledge and intelligence in all these different areas. And in fact, from all the young people, from all these different nations that Babylon was, was defeating, verse 20 says that that, that, that none of them could hold a candle to these four men. In, verse, in fact, verse 20 says that they were ten times better than all the wise men of Babylon. Now you say, okay, well that's, okay, I get that, but what does that have to do with us today? What it has to do with us today is that, that, that God gives us wisdom when we ask Him. Now these men, they, they needed God's help. They, they, they needed His wisdom. And I understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that becoming a Christian automatically adds 100 points to your IQ score. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the Bible tells us that, that, that there are times when we need a healthy dose of wisdom. Now, I will confess there have been times, especially like in college, when I was not, fully, when I was not adequately prepared for, 
a, a test. And there were times when I would pray that God would somehow mysteriously just drop it her in, just drop her in my brain. And he didn't do that. That's not, see, I'm not saying that if, if you just, you know, if, if you're trying to figure out an algebra problem, that God is just going to, you know, make a, a, the answer mysteriously appear before your eyes. But what I'm saying is there are times when we need a healthy dose of wisdom because there are things in this life that are too complex for us to figure out. There are times whenever we don't know what to do. There are times when, when there are situations that come up, problems that come up, and we just need God's wisdom. We need His help. James chapter 1 and verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now sometimes this, sometimes this applies to, to, to wisdom, and, and sometimes it applies to other things, but the Bible says you have not. Why? Because he asks not. And sometimes what you need to do is instead of trying to figure things out on your own and instead of going to, to Google and saying, what should I do about this? Sometimes what you need to do is you need to pray. You need to ask God to give you some wisdom. You need to ask God to, to help you to know what to do. Because the Bible says God will give His people wisdom. And how does He give us this wisdom? Well, again, He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just write it up in the clouds. Many times... What will happen is you'll be reading the scripture, and, and you probably have had this happen to you. You're reading the scripture, and you have some situation over here that's going on, and you're reading the scripture, and all of a sudden it's like the light comes on. It's like this. Ah, now I see how this applies to that. Now I see this. This is some instruction for me today. I don't know how I never saw that before. I see now how it applies in my situation. Sometimes it's through that. Sometimes it's by leading us more directly by 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 sometimes guiding our our thoughts and our choices. Many times it's through the counsel, the wise counsel of others. And that's kind of what happened in this case. The, 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 the people that were teaching these young men all this information, they were, not, they were not believers in the one true God. And yet God took that and he, it's like he multiplied that, he amplified that, and he took what, what they were taught and he, he let them excel in those areas. They had supernatural wisdom. Second, we see that they prayed for and with their friend. Now, if you look at chapter 2, the, the text that we read there, what had happened was Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and it troubled him. And in the ancient times, the ancient cultures, they saw dreams many times as God, or their gods, communicating with them, and maybe telling them what was going to happen in the future, or, or directing them in some way. And so they, they, they wanted their dreams interpreted. And so in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and it troubled him. It bothered him. It, it caused him to, to fret. He didn't know what, what to make of this dream. Maybe he had forgotten it. Maybe, uh, maybe he was just being coy about things. We don't know. But, but for whatever reason, Nebuchadnezzar called in these soothsayers, these, these people that could supposedly interpret dreams. He said, I've had a dream. I want you to tell me what it means. But then he does something unexpected and he doesn't tell them what the dream is. He says... What I want you to do is I want you to tell me what the dream is and what it means. Now, of course, they didn't have the ability to do that. And so the king said, all right, you're dead. He, he ordered their execution. Now, chapter 1, we, we read it just a minute ago. Daniel did have that ability because God had, had granted that to him. So in chapter 2, verse 16, if, if you have, again, if you have your Bible open... Um, 
Daniel goes to the king, asks for a few hours' time, and he says, if, if I have some time, I'll tell you what that dream means. And so then in verse 17, notice what Daniel does. Look at verse 17 again. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. He went in and told his friends so that they might pray. Notice this is not their last resort. This is not their last response. This is not a tactic. It's not that Daniel went in and said, hey, could I have some time? And then he went home and said, hey, guys, let's gather around and come up with an escape plan. Uh, Azariah, you, be the, you, you, be the, you, be, you drive the getaway chariot. Now, that's not what it is. He went home and he said, guys, we got something bad going on. I need you to pray with me. Their first response, the response their, their natural response, was to pray. They had a need. They knew they needed God's help. And so they prayed. And that alone is, is a good example for us. Prayer should not be a last resort. It should be a first resort. I think every Christian throughout history, and, and if I were to take a poll here and if we're being real honest, probably all of us would say prayer is an important part of our spiritual lives. But I think if I took, that, uh, took a poll of the same people, we would also say our prayer lives need some improvement. We say prayer is important, and I need to do better at it. I need to be more regular in it. I need to be more fervent in it. I need to more, be more persistent in it. Remember the book of James again says, The fervent prayers of a righteous man, what? Availeth much. It accomplishes a lot. Now we, we, we should not just pray for ourselves. We should not just pray for our own needs. But, but these men, they prayed for and they prayed with their friend. Now I want to tell you, if you have a friend, or especially if you have several friends who are faithful to pray with you, who are faithful to pray for you, let me tell you, that's, that's worth a whole lot. We, we should be thankful for those people in our lives that we have a need, and they say, hey, I'll pray, I'll pray for you about that. And you know they mean it. That's a, that, is, that is worth more than, than, than their weight in gold. But listen, as important as that is, and as valuable as that is, we need to be those types of people in the lives of others. Now again, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you to answer in your own mind. Have you ever told somebody you pray for them and then didn't do it? Again, I know the answer to it, but I want you to answer that about yourself. Have you ever told somebody that you pray for them and then you didn't do it? Many times, something bad will happen. There will be a tragedy. There will be some bad news. Something will happen. Prayer chain, text will go out, whatever it is. And we say, I'll pray for them. And then we forget. Then we forget. Something happens. Life gets busy. We say, well, I'm going to do it when I get home. And then we get home, and then we got, you know, the, the dryer's broken, and then we got to fix food, and then we, you know, all the stuff. And we just don't do it. Uh, all the time on social media, I see people that, that something bad will happen, and, and somebody will say, oh, thoughts and prayers. And there are some people who say that sarcastically. But, but many people will say it genuinely. And I wonder sometimes how many of them actually pray for the person or, or if they're just saying that. 
one of the things that, that I've had happen to me, confession time, I've had times when I haven't prayed for somebody, and I really meant to. I wasn't just saying, I'll, I'll pray for you. I've had times whenever something's come up, and I had every intention of doing it in a minute, and then that minute kind of got extended out to never, or it got extended out to too late, because I didn't do it right then, and so then my memory is not what it used to be, and maybe I remembered it two weeks later. But listen, one of the things that, that I've, that I've by necessity what I've had to do is if I find out a need, I better pray right then. And I, and I don't have to bow my head and close my eyes and, and, and all that. But, but my memory isn't very reliable sometimes. And so, so there's a good chance I'm going to forget, I'm going to get distracted, and maybe that's why you need to, maybe that's happened to you, maybe you just need to focus on whenever somebody tells you something, you just need to stop right then and pray. These men prayed for, for and with their friend. The last thing I want you to see in chapter 3 is that they were courageous. They were courageous. Now where we pick up, it's, it's probably several years down the road. We don't know the, 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 the time interval between chapters 2 and 3, but, but there's, there's a while that's happened. And Nebuchadnezzar has this giant statue um, built and erected out on this plain. We don't know who it was. It may have been a statue of himself. It may have been of his father. That was kind of the, the, uh, the custom back then. It may have been of his, of his false god, Bel Marduk. But whatever the statue was, if you'll, if you'll notice... There was a religious aspect that was involved in it because they, when they heard the music, they were to bow down and worship this statue. They were to bow down and worship this false god. Now remember, these are pagan people. They, they worshipped all kinds of idols and gods. But in their way of thinking, there was no moral issue, no moral problem with worshipping somebody else's god. Because if they're all gods, they deserve to be worshipped too. And that's just not my god, but that's okay, I'll, I'll worship them. And so, so they were okay with this. The only group that would have had a problem with worshiping this God were the Jews. Because they believed uniquely in that day and time that there was one God. They were monotheists. There, there's one God who is creator of heaven and earth. He is ruler and maker of everything. There's only one true and living God. And therefore, if anyone or anything claims to be God, even a God, that is an idol, and therefore to engage in worship of that is a sin. And so everybody else, else is bowing down except these Jews who are in government because they didn't have everybody come in. It was the, the, the rulers, the, the governors, satraps, and so forth, had them all come in. And so these, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, everybody else is bowing down except for three guys. Can you imagine? You're the only one standing there. You're the only one not bowing down. Now they get right out to Nebuchadnezzar, and he brought them in to, to, to answer for this to, to this accusation. And it's interesting that he did not just issue a summary judgment against them and order them executed on the spot like he did with the, the magicians. He seems to have had a, a, a deal of respect for them because he brings them in and gives them an out to escape the judgment he has prescribed. It's like he's saying, I'm sure there's been a misunderstanding. Now, if you'll just bow down now and do it, all's forgiven. But look again at verse 15. He gives him this other chance. And notice the question at the end of verse 15. He says, now if, if you're ready to, 
to, to, to bow down again when you hear the music going. All, all's well. But if you, if you don't, you're going to be cast into this burning of blazing, furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, he's getting ready to find out, isn't he? Look at verse 16. Notice their, their courage and their bravery. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now remember their, their position. Have you noticed that the older you get, now not you guys, people you know, the older you get, the crankier you get. Well, I'm, I, well never mind. Um, sometimes, we, sometimes it, it's kind of like a fine wine. Sometimes people get better as they age. Sometimes they turn to vinegar, though. Sometimes they get kind of cranky and outspoken. But these men... When they say, we're not going to worship the, the, your gods, we're not going to bow down to this idol, they're not cantankerous old men. These are young men still. They, they, they were taken captive when they were probably no later than teenagers, and so they had limited opportunity for religious instruction at home and in their homeland. They, they didn't have years and years and years and years and years of being taught the scriptures. They were facing a horrific and painful death. They had the peer pressure of literally... Everybody else doing one thing, and they're the only three that are not. They were standing before the most powerful despot in the world who could have them executed on the spot, and he was planning on doing it, and he was planning on doing it in a horrific way, put into a furnace, probably a brick kiln or something similar. And he's given them one more chance. Can you imagine the pressure they would have felt? But you'll notice in verses uh, 16 and, and following, they didn't waver. They didn't have a conference. They didn't say, hold on, king, we need to talk about this. They, they didn't discuss it. They'd already made up their minds. They didn't try to strike a deal. They didn't say, well, could we do this behind closed doors so that nobody else will see it, but, but she, it would just be our secret. They didn't do that. They didn't say, well, we'll do it outwardly, but our hearts were still going to be standing. They weren't disrespectful. They were just forthright and extremely bold. Now, we know the rest of the story, but they didn't. They didn't know that they were going to be saved. Notice, what, notice their words. They said, God is able to deliver us from this horrible fate, but even if he chooses not to, let it be known to you, we are not going to serve your gods. We are not going to worship the golden image you've set up. They were choosing to do what was right regardless of the outcome. They were choosing to, to suffer and maybe even die rather than sin. Many of us, I think, would say, I'll do it and ask God for forgiveness later. But they said, we'll just not do it. And what a condemnation this is for many of us, because not only because they, uh, they were being so bold, but notice what they said in, verses, in verse 18. They're saying, I'm going to do what's right even if God doesn't do what I hope he does. I'm going to follow him even if he doesn't answer the way I want. And sometimes, 
bad things will happen to us as Christians, and sometimes we say things in our hearts like, well, if this is the way things are going to be, why am I even following God? If this is the way things are going to be, if, if I'm going to experience this loss, if I'm going to experience this pain, why am I even trying to walk with the Lord? Isn't that the essence of Job, uh, Satan's accusation against Job? Remember in Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Basically, he's saying, Well, of course Job's going to follow you. Because he's wealthy. You're making everything go good for him. He's got lots of land, lots of livestock, lots of kids. And I wonder sometimes if if his accusation isn't really true of us as Christians. Do we follow God until it hurts? And then we say, that's enough. Do we follow God until a bad turn of events? But notice... Verse 18, God is still God, even if, even if he doesn't do what they're hoping. Now, I said, we know the rest of the story. God did deliver them. But this account really brings up two questions that that each of us need to ask ourselves. First, do we have the courage to stand up and do what's right, regardless of the consequences? These guys chose to do what was right and let the chips fall where they may. And number two, are you resolved to follow God even if he doesn't act the way you hope he will? Are you resolved to follow God even if he does not act the way you hope that he will? Now, those are not easy questions. And frankly, if you answer them honestly in your own heart, you may not like the answer that you come back with. But they're questions that still need to be asked. In my own life, I've, I've had to struggle with these questions, especially the second one, because th- there have been times in my life when, especially, especially one situation a, a, a number of years ago, that that was, that was honestly what I was having to wrestle with. That, that, that was something that came to mind. It's like, and why am I even following God if this is going to happen? And at the end of the day, what I, what I ended up realizing or discovering or settling on was I'm going to be going through the trial, whether I want to or not, and it's foolishness to turn my back on the only one who can sustain me through that trial. It is foolishness to turn my back on the only one who can bring good out of that trial. These guys are courageous under, or rather they're courageous in, the fire. Now as we close that, I just want you to consider their, their example, because for me I think it's both inspirational, but it's also convicting. And of these three things, which, are, which, are the, which is the area you need to improve in the most? Do you need wisdom from God? Do you have some situation that you're facing in, in, in your home or in your work or whatever it is, and you need God's wisdom? Pray and, and simply ask Him. Search the Scriptures. Talk to trusted, mature Christians. Or maybe it's your area of prayer. Again, we, we would all say it's important. But probably all of us would say we have some room for improvement. So, so how do you improve your prayer life? The same as way you improve other parts of your life. Start with, with the end in mind, the goal. Say, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to be uh, known for. This is what I want to be doing. 
Say, this is where I want to be, and then work backwards from that. So maybe what you need to do to accomplish that, that goal, maybe what you need to do is, is, is make it a point to pray every day. Maybe the only time you pray is when you come to church. Maybe the only time you pray is if somebody calls on you to, to, to ask the blessing over the food. Maybe you need to set an alarm to remind you to pray. Maybe you need to set your alarm clock a few minutes earlier in the day so you can have time in the mornings to pray. Start with, with what, you want it to, what you want it to be and work backwards. And then, of course, their example of, of courage. That's the thing that we think of the most. Are you committed to, to, to following God, no matter what, in the midst of difficulties, even if He doesn't do what you want Him to do? And if, if not, resolve to doing that. Watch stand with me as uh, musicians come. And as you stand, I ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, I, I just, again, I, I'd encourage you to take honest stock of your life in those three areas. Now, this has been a, a sermon pointed directly at Christians. But it could be that you're here, you're listening to me, and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior. And even now as we talk about following God and, 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 and prayer and all those things, you know that that doesn't apply to you because you don't know Him in a personal saving way. If that's you, you don't have to leave here in that condition. Confess your sin to Him, repent of it, turn your back on it, and turn to Him in faith. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be, not might be, shall be, will be saved. Maybe you have some other need on your heart. Take that to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the we thank you for the bad examples in Scripture like we looked at last week with Jezebel. But boy, we thank you especially for the good examples that show us what can be done in our walk with you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us as we face situations in life where we need, um, where we need wisdom. I pray that you would grant that to those who need it. We pray that you'd help us to be better prayers, be more faithful to pray for others. And God, I I ask that you'd help us to have the courage of these young men who stand up and do what's right no matter what and be committed to following you no matter what. Lord, if there's somebody here who's never accepted Christ, I pray that you draw them to yourself and let them become your child. In Jesus' name, amen.